Well, do take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Lamentations 5. We will be looking at the entirety of Lamentations 5 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 690. The title of our sermon is Your Throne Endures, and the key words for our worshipers in training are Remember, Forget, and Restore. So here we've, we've come to the end of, of Lamentations. A great Christmas Day sermon, no doubt. And I'll explain in a minute why I am still preaching this uh, this morning. Not the least of which reason is that it just feels fitting to finish the book at the very end of the year. But we'll get to that in a minute. But when I ask you this question up front, is there anything... Uh, probably not anything worse. You can think of worse things. But a bad ending tacked on to a great story is a terrible thing, right? It's infuriating. You spend all that time reading the book or watching the movie or, or listening to someone tell a story, and then the end comes and you think, really? That's it? Or maybe you think, are you kidding me? Or, or maybe there's loose ends and you're thinking, well, what, what about this? Or, or what about that? Or you just think, well, that was just awful. Right? An ending that comes out of nowhere or an ending that leaves all the important questions unanswered or an ending that doesn't seem deserved, right? Maybe it's victory for the wicked or, or loss for the righteous. These types of endings are inexcusable. And upon first glance, Lamentations 5 might tempt us to accuse its author of inflicting such an ending on its readers. After seemingly working to answer life's deep questions about human suffering and God's sovereignty and His compassion and His justice, the book ends on something of a down note. And it leaves much of the book's tension seemingly unresolved. So perhaps you read Lamentations and you get to the end of it and you have a bit of a sour taste in your mouth for this book. Perhaps you have little willingness to to return to it later on. But I trust that by God's help and grace, by the time we're done this morning, we will have no such misconceptions about this book and its ending. As I mentioned, I do want to explain a bit. So, if, if this is your first time here, if you've not been with us for a while, it might seem odd that I would be preaching from the book of Lamentations, much less Lamentations 5 on Christmas Day. It might help you to know that it is our practice here at Redeemer Baptist Church to typically preach through books of the Bible. And while we do occasionally take breaks from that to preach a brief topical series or perhaps even a, like a sermon on, on Advent... As I considered Lamentations 5 leading up to this week, it struck me that this text in its entirety actually does prove 
uh, quite a fitting passage for our consideration on this cold Christmas morning. And I, I trust that by the time we're done, you'll, you'll see that as well. And so, getting there. If you've not been with us since October, when we began this series, there are three things about this book that are helpful to know as we head into this last and final poem. And the, the three things are its, its historical context, its literary design, and its biblical content. So I want to take a minute to just uh, either introduce those things to you if you've not heard them before or if you've been here, just to refresh our memories, and then we will get to our passage. So uh, the first is the historical context of this book. Lamentations was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. after the city was sacked by the Babylonians. So just shy of 600 years before Christ was born, the Babylonians, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they killed a bunch of people, carried the, most of the survivors away into exile, and then left some of the poorest of the city to feed, and to, to feed themselves, to fend for themselves. The book as a whole depicts in gruesome detail the suffering of the people of Judah after these raids. And the book makes emphatically clear that all of it came about because of Judah's purposeful and high-handed disregard for the covenant God had made with them centuries prior. And all of this happened despite God sending prophet after prophet after prophet to Judah, imploring them to turn from their sins and to remain faithful to their covenant with Him. So that's the historical context Another feature of the book that we need to keep in mind as we head into this fifth, this fifth poem is its literary design. The content of the book, as we'll see in a minute, is extremely dark and chaotic. The literary design of the book, however, aims to, uh, it aims to explore the agonizing depth of human suffering in an ordered and structured way. The book consists of five poems, of 22 stanzas each, and they, they all, uh, four of the five of them all employ what's called an acrostic, meaning that the poems are written alphabetically. The first two poems have 22 three-line stanzas where each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, right, again, in English, if we were doing it in English, it would be verse 1 would be A, 2 would be B, 3 would be C. The third poem, however, which also has 22 three-line stanzas, heightens and sharpens the acrostic where each line begins with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So now it's verses 1, 2, and 3 all begin with A. 4, 5, and 6 begin with B in English, right? And so that's why in our English Bibles, the third poem has 66 verses in it. Um, So Lamentations 3 is the climax of the book, both structurally and thematically. But then, as we've seen in the last few weeks, when we get to Lamentations 4, the acrostic is still employed, but the verses are, the stanzas are shortened. It's 22 two-line stanzas. And now here in Lamentations 5, we have 22 one-line stanzas, and the acrostic is abandoned completely. The effect of the shortening of these stanzas and the leaving off of the acrostic device in this fifth poem leaves the readers, it gives us the feeling of a, 
a sort of a chaotic ending, a, a, a limping to a close. We get the, the heights of Lamentations 3 that just sort of dwindle down to this sort of dark and chaotic end in Lamentations 5. It gives the sense that any attempt to ponder human suffering in a structured and orderly way is nearly impossible. The point seems to be that we need to be very careful and try not to be overly righteous in our exploration of of pain and suffering. Yes, God is faithful and His mercies never end, but pain is real. And frankly, at times, it's unbearable. Even on a Christmas morning. And all of this brings us to the the third introductory issue that we need heading into this fifth poem. If we're just walking in, it's the, the content of the book. When we began, we witnessed in Lamentations 1 and 2 a conversation between the narrator of the book, whom we've we've most often referred to simply as the poet, and the people of Jerusalem personified as this weeping woman whom we've named Lady Zion. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the poet describes the woman in in agonizing terms, lamenting the suffering that had befallen her because of her sins against God. She then speaks in 1, 12 through 22 and laments her suffering. She even confesses her sin to a degree, but largely falls back to self-pity, concluding with the request to God that He would judge her enemies. In Lamentations 2, we saw the poet speak once more, and this time he, he walks a tightrope in the first few verses of Lamentations 2, a tightrope of distress and anger and grief over what God has done to His people. But ultimately, he doesn't charge God with wrong. But at the end of Lamentations 2, he, he allows this woman to speak. He, he attempts to comfort her, and he tells her to call out to God. And when she speaks, she does so for only three lines. And she essentially accuses God of forsaking His covenant with humanity, with Judah itself. And, and she accuses Him of, of forsaking His own holiness and concludes that God had become her enemy. And then she falls into despairing silence. In Lamentations 3, the poet interjects uh, himself personally into the story in a way that he hadn't so far. And he, he demonstrates for Lady Zion. He demonstrates for us what biblical lament of suffering looks like. Biblical confession of sin and, and hope for deliverance. He demonstrates what those things look like. But then in the last two weeks we saw in Lamentations 4 that even when we have the full assurance of God's goodness, justice, and sovereignty firmly tucked away in our hearts, we still live in a sinful world, a painful world, and it's racked with suffering. And we can only place our hope in God and not in men. And today in Lamentations 5, we see the poet lead the people of Jerusalem even while they're still in the utter anguish that we considered in Lamentations 4. He leads them in this corporate prayer of lament. And the poem closes with a, with a question and a search that brings us squarely to the foot of the manger and then squarely to the foot of the cross. And so, with a fairly lengthy introduction now out of the way, let me read uh, Lamentations 5, outline it, and then we'll get to work. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must... 
pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their heads. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. So there are three things, big, three big ideas that I want you to see with me from this text today. First, in verse 1, we will see the people ask God to remember them. Then in verses 2 through 18, we will see the people lament one final time the intensity of the suffering that they have endured. And then third, in verses 19 through 22, we see the people search for the sovereign God. So look with me in the first place at verse 1, where we see the poet lead the people in this corporate prayer, asking God to look, to see, and to remember them. Most immediately, this request picks up on a, a theme that has pervaded the conversation so far, especially considering Lamentations 1 and 2, where the poet and Lady Zion are speaking. Four times in those two poems, Lady Zion asks God to look and see. She first makes the request in Lamentations 1.9, she says, Behold, O Lord, for my enemy has triumphed. Then she says in 1.11, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Then in 1.20, she says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. And then her dis- in her despairing, disbelieving cry at the end of Lamentations 2 in verse 20, she says, Look, O Lord, and see. And as we said when we look back at that last verse in Lamentations 2.20 back in November, we, we began to fear that Lady Zion would, would never speak again. We would never hear from her again. And yet, here now in Lamentations 5, the poet, we see in, in the, all the plurals here, the poet is leading the people in this prayer. And so she once more calls upon the Lord with the poet as her guide. She calls upon the Lord to look and see and remember. Now why would the poet, why would this battered woman call upon God to look, to see, and to remember? Isn't God all-seeing? Isn't God all-knowing? 
can God, can God forget something? Is that the point? That God has, has actually forgotten His people? Is it possible that He is blind to the suffering of His saints? No, of course not. The request here in Lamentations 5.1, made of Yahweh, is not to ask Him to see something that He cannot already see, but to ask Him to give special attention to something that He presently observes. The request that He remember is not a supplication that God try to call to mind something that He had previously known and has now forgotten, but He's being asked in a special way to focus His mind on a promise made. In particular, it is the promise made in the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise that was extended in the covenant made with Israel under Moses. It was the promise that reached its pinnacle in the covenant made with David, which we saw just briefly we looked at last week when we referenced 2 Samuel 7. This call to remember, or this act of remembering, is we, we begin to see a common tactic of the poet. We saw in Lamentations 3 that he called God's Word to mind, which gave him hope. Specifically there, he had called Exodus 34, 6 to mind, that the Lord was, was merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Well, here he's doing the same thing. He's, he's calling something to mind. He's, he's asking Lady Zion to call something to mind, and he's asking God to call something to mind. And what, what would that be? What text is he calling to mind here? Well, he's already quoted from Exodus. Perhaps he's quoting from Exodus again, you might say. And if you would say that, you would be right. Does Exodus 2 ring a bell for anyone? How about Exodus 2, 23-25? During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There it is. Look and see, O Lord, the people ask. Look and see and remember, just like you did back in Egypt, just like you did back in the Exodus, just like you did back when we were slaves. You know, we saw last week in Lamentations 4, 17 through 22, that Israel had a habit of complaining against God and of longing for Egypt. In verse 17, we saw that even in the Babylonian siege, the Babylonians at the gates Judah, Jerusalem was waiting for Egypt to come and to rescue them. Perhaps now, with Egypt firmly fixed in mind, as they clearly are with the reference in verse 6, there's still a plea for help. Oh Lord, would you perform another exodus? Remember us. And more specifically, he asked, remember the covenants that you made with us. The one with David. The one with the nation of Israel as a whole. The one with Jacob and and Isaac and Abraham. Remember your promise not to forsake us. Not to abandon us. Not to leave us for lost. 
So that's the first big idea. The people of God call upon God to remember. Well, in the second place, in verses 2 through 18, we see the people lament a final time all the agony that had come upon them. And they lament three particular humiliations that they suffered at the hands of the Babylonians that I want to highlight for you here. They suffered economic humiliations, which we see in verses 2 through 10. They, they suffered social humiliations that we see in verses 11 through 16. And they suffered spiritual humiliations that we see in 17 and 18. And we'll look at each of those briefly. In verses 2 through 10, we see that the people of Jerusalem suffered extreme economic suffering and humiliation. They lost their inheritances The water, the food, the cooking materials that they got were purchased. Uh, They had to be purchased at high prices. They they had to be begged for. In verse 7, they make clear that that this is a result of the sins of their fathers, right? Namely, looking looking to Assyria, looking to Egypt, looking to others for help, trusting in someone and something other than God. So they're, they're suffering but they don't just blame their fathers. In verse 16, they acknowledge that they had, they had sinned also. Verses 8 through 10, they further lament their economic sufferings because they're recognizing now that slaves rule over us. They have to risk their lives just to get bread. The, the very thing that is sort of most uh, known for just sustaining life, right? If you don't have bread, you don't have anything. They have to risk their lives for it. And their skin is, is burning in the heat of famine. And they're living miserable lives. So economically, they have been humiliated, decimated. Moving on to verses 11 through 16, we see the people lament social humiliations they experience. Women are raped. Princes are publicly executed. Elders are disgraced. Young men are forced to work under heavy burdens of carrying loads of wood. Young men are crushed under these these weights that they carry. And it led to the extinguishing of their joy. They they didn't dance anymore. They didn't sing anymore. The crown of glory of their former might and their power had fallen. Socially, they're humiliated. And finally, in verses 17 and 18, they lament more devast- most devastatingly of all the, the spiritual humiliations they were dealt. The, the temple, Mount Zion, the place where God dwelt among them, had been reduced to rubble. It lied desolate and scavengers proud over it. Spiritually, they were humiliated. They were the people of God now left in ruins. And then, so in summary of these humiliations, they say, Our hearts are sick, our eyes have grown dim. And once more, for not, not the first time in this poem, or in these poems, if you're reading it all the way through, you might be tempted to think when you get to verse 18, is that it? Will the people, like Lady Zion had, like they did back in chapter 2, will they fall into disbelieving silence once more? But then we remember that they are with the poet now, and the poet is with them. 
and the prayer continues. And the Godward explosion of verse 19 shocks us from any stupor into which we may have fallen during the grisly laments of verses 2 through 18. So that brings us to the third place in verses 19 and 22 where we see the, the poet lead the people in the search for the sovereign God. Seemingly out of nowhere, the, the, the prayer skyrockets from the basement, blows a hole in the ceiling. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Where in the world does that come from? On the one hand, we might say we don't know. It seems so out of place. It seems so out of nowhere. All we can say, perhaps, is that it's something that has been lying just under the surface. Building, bubbling, ready to burst ever since Lamentations 3.22. The hope expressed there, perhaps, just cannot be conquered, even in the darkness of Lamentations 4 in the first 18 verses of Lamentations 5. And yet, the confession here in 5.19 on its own is not necessarily a hopeful one. Think about it. Just because God reigns over Jerusalem does not mean that He reigns for Jerusalem. And so the poet and the people... They're skyrocketing to heaven in their quest for God, but it leads to a question. Yes, God, You are the Sovereign Lord. Your throne endures and it will never end. But have You forgotten us? That's not even what they ask. They don't ask, have You forgotten us? They say, why do You forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? So another way you can reframe verses 19 and 20 here is, yes, God is sovereign, but is the sovereign God sovereign for me or sovereign against me? And without pausing to wait for an answer, they press on and they employ the sovereign God to act for them. Without waiting for God to answer, for without waiting for someone else to answer, they move on and they ask God to act. Restore us to Yourself. Renew us, O God. And then we get to verse 22, which leads us to the question with which we began. Is the ending of Lamentations good or bad? Is it a deserved ending or not? The final words of the book essentially ask the question, God, have you utterly rejected us in your anger? And that brings us to the, the Christmassy part of the sermon. We noted last week that God had already promised Jerusalem that He would redeem and rescue them from exile. The people were in exile for 70 years, but then under Cyrus, king of Persia, they were permitted to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. And yet, that return and that rebuilding of the temple and the city was not all that was expected. 
In fact, in Haggai chapter 2, we read that they did rebuild the temple, but it was clear that the glory of the second temple was nowhere close to the glory of the first. That's 2-3 in Haggai. And so they rebuild the temple under the Persians, but then come the Greeks, and then the Romans, and under Caesar Augustus, we get to his census, recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, and at that point, even with the rebuilt temple, they would still likely have the question resonating in their hearts, the hearts of faithful Israelites, God, have you utterly forsaken us? Through the words of Lamentations 5 in the ending, does that describe reality? Has God forsaken us? And of course, the manger is the answer to the question, absolutely not. God has not rejected His people. He has not utterly cast them off forever. In fact, this request in Lamentations 5 for God to restore them was granted far more than they could have imagined. For what did it take for God to restore a sinful people to Himself? It took the incarnation, righteous life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection and ascension of His Son. The young boys staggering under the loads of wood in Lamentations 5.13 point us forward to the child who would be laid down for sleep in a manger of wood and then laid out on and nailed to a cross of wood. The crown which fell from the head of Lady Zion was picked up and exchanged for a crown of thorns that was beaten into the skull of the king who was born among sheep. The orphans of Jerusalem foreshadowed the boy without an earthly father who would on the cross, be abandoned by His heavenly Father. And why? Why does God forsake Him? It is so that He can answer this question in Lamentations 5.20, Why do you forget us forever, O God? I haven't. And I won't. I quoted Haggai 2.3 a moment ago, but listen to what Haggai 2.9 says. God says that the glory of the second temple would be greater than the first. So how can the glory of the second temple both exceed and fall far short of the glory of the first? Well, the temple rebuilt after the return from exile was nothing compared to the first. But that's not the ultimate promise, the ultimate fulfillment here. Jesus is the temple's true fulfillment as the place where God, according to John 1.14, where God would be pleased to dwell with us. Literally, that text in John says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so let me offer you this. Do you fear that the sovereign God is not sovereign for you? Do you feel like God has forgotten you? That He has forsaken you? Well, may I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem for sinners like you. 
May I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true temple where God has dwelt with His people, and now by the instrument of faith draws all believers into this living temple who are united to Christ and dwelt by His Spirit. And all this temple talk is more than just a reference to the birth of Christ. It is a reference to the entirety, the whole Christ. His his subsequent sinless life, His sacrificial death, His vindicating resurrection, His royal ascension to the throne of God. So sinner, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus incarnate for you. Believe in Jesus righteous for you. Believe in Jesus dead for you. Believe in Jesus resurrected for you. And believe in Jesus ascended and reigning right now from heaven for you. Where he exchanged the crown of thorns for the crown of glory. So this is the hope of Lamentations. All that we have seen All of these heart-wrenching words stained with tears, with deep sorrow and agony, they all point us to this. That the Lord Jesus came and bore every one of these. Every covenant curse that His people deserved. Jesus bore them. So that He might exchange for us. Exchange His righteousness, His righteous life for ours. For our sinful life. And so I pray that this book has been helpful to you. As we've said, it is a book that we often avoid. We often don't quite know what to do with. And so uh, I, I pray that it's been a blessing to you that we can see Jesus on every page and that we come to the end here and we have the question ringing in our hearts. Oh God, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Are you, are you exceedingly angry with us? We hear God through His Son in the power of His Spirit answer, No. No.